from the Orange County Fire Authority. This is the Pass Along Podcast, where we address firefighter issues from top to bottom, from your helmet down to your boots. Now, here's your host. Hi, and welcome back to the OCFA Pass Along Podcast. My name is Jeff Hughes, and I'm a fire captain currently assigned to risk management as the Cancer Awareness and Prevention Captain. I'm going to be your host for this podcast, actually for this six-part series on our podcast. We're doing something a little different than normal. On October 24th and 25th, the OCFA hosted a behavioral health conference titled Past, Present, and Future. Since then, we've been preparing the presentations from that event so we can make them available to everyone who wasn't able to attend. You can find the video versions of the presentations in our show notes of each podcast episode as well as on Vimeo on the OCFA page. This is the second podcast in our six-part series and features two FDNY retirees, Battalion Chief Joe Krebs and Firefighter Frank Ungaro. They were the founders of the Peer Support and Family Support Services for the FDNY four days following the 9-11 tragedy. Here is Joe and Frank. So September 11th, 2001. Talk about a date that will forever be etched in our minds, at least in the minds of professional firefighters and Americans. It's one of the country's largest and most deadly attacks on U.S. soil. On that day, terrorists killed nearly 3,000 civilians and responders. We all recognize that 343 members of the City of New York Fire Department, including the Chief of the Department, the Assistant Chief of the Department, every responding member of the Special Operation Command were wiped out in a single, in a single day, a single incident. That Tuesday morning in September, Tragically, over 1,700 FDNY firefighters have been diagnosed with World Trade Center-linked cancers, respiratory problems, and other 9-11-related illnesses. The FDNY Battalion Chief and Uniformed Fire Officers Association recently stated that 186 members have died uh, of cancer due to the work of the World Trade Center and the recovery effort. In the days immediately following, September 11th, two retired members of the FDNY responded to the city to help wherever they could, including work on the pile. They just came to help. They answered their own internal call to assist. They met with the commissioner. You'll get the story directly from the horse's mouth. I don't mean that in any way, but love, of course. (laughs) At the time, with that serious hit on their department, there was many dramatic, emotional uh, issues going on with the department to where FDNY was trying to operate, still running calls, still dealing with the relief or the recovery issues. The NFFF, the IAFF, everybody wants to help, but everybody's doing their own thing. And they were tasked by, I believe, the commissioner, and like I said, we'll get it directly uh, uh, from Chief Krebs here, um, by the commissioner to bring all of the entities together and work together for the recovery of their people, both those that were missing and their families of the lost, 
but about the people that were still continuing to work every day. This incredible story really doesn't deserve me to tell it. So I'm going to invite retired battalion chief Joe Krebs, retired firefighter uh, FDNY Frank Ungaro, who really brought everybody together uh, and did some incredible work the days following 9-11. Welcome Chief Krebs, Joe Krebs, and Frank Ungaro. Uh, as you can, as you'll see, as we present, this is not something we do <clears throat> on a regular basis. We've we've done this once before, in 2003, uh, in, in Baltimore, and it's funny because Baltimore was mentioned before, but it was interesting because when we first started doing our presentation, it started to snow a little bit outside. And by the time our presentation was finished, or by that evening, there was 19 inches of snow. So I kind of wish we had a window here that we can look out and make sure everything's <laughs> going to be okay. And it worked out great. We were stuck in Baltimore for four days. Couldn't, couldn't get across the street, but fortunately, the only thing that was in the hotel was an Irish pub. <laughs> so all of the people involved in the crisis intervention that were there enjoyed it. Uh, all right, so this, so we talked about the history, and I know Jeff mentioned history and talking about the 80s. So if that was the history, we're clearly ancient history. <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit about when we first got involved. So I just want to spend a minute talking about how we got together, Frankie and I. Uh, uh, the war, we called it the war years in those days in the South Bronx. Uh, from the late 60s through the 70s. For me, I had just gotten home from Vietnam in 68 and went right on. I was very fortunate. We only give the test to come on uh, the fire department every four years. I was fortunate to get right on. Uh, so literally, it was within a few months, I was, went from South Vietnam to the South Bronx. And I'm only mentioning it because there were times in the South Bronx that I wished I was back in <laughs> South Vietnam. There, there, there was a lot of civil unrest. Uh, we had multiple civilian, civilian casualties. And the expression we used to use was that we lost one. And it's probably not a good expression because it carries the inherent, you know, we didn't do our job. And in many cases, you know, the person ha had not survived the fire long before we even got there. But it's just one of those things that we used to mention. Uh, also, multiple firefighter casualties. The death rate in those years was significantly higher than it is now. Uh, Frankie and I were both intimately involved in, in a few of those. Uh, no CISM whatsoever. And once again, we're talking in the, er, er, definitely in the early 70s. Uh, there was one particular fire that uh, uh, a man from our company was, we were taking a ladder down in a train yard, and, a lot of, and the guy from our company was holding the, the rope to lower and raise the ladder, and uh, the, the ladder hit the overhead catenary high-tension high lines, and the two people, not from our company, from the next company from us, they were both electrocuted. 
the guy holding the rope was obviously shaken. So he, the next tour, he, he was going sick with stress. Uh, when he went to the medical office, he was labeled as a coward. Uh, it was just, it was, it was the, men, the mentality and it was the culture in those days. It's just the way it was. And last but not least, there was a, uh, a drinking culture to a great degree, you know, in, in 60s and before. Uh, when we did come back from having a really tough job, which was frequently a, a good boss, a good officer, that, that, that was the sign of you guys did a good job. He'd put a case of beer on the table. And, and, and as I said, that was just the way it was. It was the accepted culture. It certainly changed with time. Uh, all right, so a little bit of the history and how we got involved in crisis management. Uh, in 1984, I, I was a firefighter in the Bronx for a long, long time. Uh, when I made lieutenant, they send you to a different area of the city. So I went to a really slow area of the city. And after four years, when I made captain, I was looking to go back to the ghettos. So I put in a request to go put all the busy companies in the ghettos, and they sent me to Midtown Manhattan, which was not the, it's, it's, some guys call it the girly ghetto, but it's not, <laughs> it's not definitely a fire ghetto by any means. Uh, so in 84, I volunteered to go to the fire academy, and we were just starting a, a training program for all we knew, we promoted offices, and as part of that, we developed a segment on crisis intervention. So once again, 84, pretty early on. Uh, 1985, Hackensack, New Jersey, uh, had a fire, and five, 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 five firefighters were killed. And we actually sent our team over of people that had been developing this program. So that's when we really first got started, and I think it was in the really, really early days of uh, critical and stress management. And the person that we got involved with was Jeff Mitchell, Dr. Jeffrey Mitchell, whose brother happened to be a firefighter with Frankie and I. So that made that connection, you know, solid, and uh, it, it, it worked out well. Uh, 1986, uh, we, have a count we had a very effective counseling unit, very effective. But the primary emphasis was always on drug and alcohol treatment, and, that, and, and primary alcohol treatment in those days. There was really little interest, I, I shouldn't say interest, but uh, actual movement to, to help out with uh, CISM matters. So we sent a proposal that we would be glad to supplement the counseling unit, to send our teams, and, and so on and so forth. But the response came back as, you know, you guys, are, you shouldn't be amateur psychologists. You shouldn't be doing this. You should leave this to the professionals. Obviously, didn't didn't work out real well. Uh, 1990 was my next involvement with it. It was the uh, Happy Land Social Club. I think you guys have probably heard of that. Uh, 87 people were dead. Uh, it was my company uh, that was there. And what happened in terms of a bad CISM decision, the chief in charge, he took my company in particular, and the, and the fire flashed over quickly, and, all, and there wasn't really much of a fire. It just flashed over, 
87 people were there, and many of them were sitting in the position that they were in. It was a nightclub, still sitting at the table, and, and you know, it was a pretty tough scene. And he took my company, which was all young kids, and in order to maintain the crime scene, he left them in there, I guess, all, almost, almost overnight. And really, uh, you know, it, it, affected, it affected them greatly. Uh, the counseling unit finally did get involved with, with the debriefing. And once again, Jeff Mitchell came back and, and assisted in doing that. Uh, we had both been retired at that point. Uh, I was teaching school in, in Asheville, North Carolina. Frankie was still living uh, in, in New York State. Uh, Frankie got to the pile on the 11th. Uh, and he was also helping another firefighter who had lost his son, you know, going around the city checking to see if anything could be found, which it wasn't. Uh, the, on the 12th and the 13th, 13th, we, you know, I got up there on the 12th. And so on the 12th and the 13th, we were both on the pile, and you've seen the pictures of people on the pile. Uh, uh, by the 14th, the, there was not really a real role for the retirees. Uh, it started to get organized at Ground Zero. So they were asking the, all the retirees to go to wakes and funerals because normally when we had a line of duty funeral, we have thousands of people. But obviously there were not going to be thousands of people available to go to these funerals. So they asked the retirees to do that. And at one of these uh, funerals on uh, the 15th, uh, Frankie and I went to two funerals. At the second funeral, I met a good friend of mine uh, who is now the commissioner. Uh, uh, assist, uh, he was the first deputy commissioner, uh, Tom Fitzpatrick. And Tom Fitzpatrick and I had worked together at the fire academy years ago to put together the crisis intervention teams that previously uh, we implemented. So we just volunteered, and he said, yeah, okay, I've got these jobs for you to do, and one of the jobs was to help in this compilation that would be going around to assist our counseling unit to make visits primarily to the firehouse. And one, of the, one of the issues we came in, is, it reminds me when we see the badges, is that we had a very difficult time getting into Ground Zero. We could get in fine, you know, FDMY guys, but any, any counselors, any people that came from out of state, out of city, the FBI and, and the federal government really protected that area because it was still an active uh, crime scene. So we spent a good portion of every day getting credentials for the other people from out of state that came to help. And, you know, that's something that we can think about in the future. There has to be a better way of doing that. Hopefully there'll never be an incident like this, but it would be one of the things to consider about how to streamline that whole operation. Uh, the National Fallen Firefighters, Foundation came in, and they basically, they were, they were deputized under FEMA. And the reason they were, they were deputized is because we had all these grand intentions of doing these things, but no money to do it. So the, once they were deputized under FEMA, they were able to get funding in. So that was their primary role, to provide the funding. You know, they took care of the hotel and, and you know, all the things that, cost money. The International Association of Fighter Fighters was, I don't know what the word for it, they were, they were there for everything we needed. They were absolutely incredible. 
Uh, Pat Morrison is the head of uh, health and safety, and he really handled that whole operation. But they brought teams of peers in from around the country, primarily from the state of Massachusetts. Massachusetts was way ahead of the game in terms of their organization structure for peer counseling. We brought in, first of all, we had uh, people from Massachusetts who were a member of uh, their clergy organization that had some training in this. And then eventually the New York Archdiocese took over. Uh, we had one priest, Father Gunn, who was uh, a very good uh, friend of ours. Uh, and he really, he, and he was peer counseled and, and on a team. So he was the main guy for organ, organizing that. And there was some discussion about whether or not we should have members of the clergy on the teams. But, you know, there were some needs that were met, not only of the people in the firehouse, but for us as well. So we thought they were very effective. And then the key, we could have had all of these things going on, but if, if you couldn't get in the door of the firehouse, it wasn't going to work. So, and, and, you know, we're a very uh, parochial kind of organization, and like the guys from the Bronx didn't talk to the guys from Brooklyn. You know, it was, it was that kind of a thing. So we needed, and we, you notice we took just the best-looking peers. Uh, we knew that we needed FDNY retirees to get them in the door, say, hey, listen, these guys are here to help us, you know, uh, just give us about 10 minutes of your time, and, and that really worked out beautifully. And besides the operation that we had, which was primarily going into the firehouses, there were other people there from the IAFF, and they set up, state, they set up areas down at Ground Zero, and they had 40 different teams. They made 7,000 contacts. One of the things that was also somewhat of an issue is down at Ground Zero, I don't know if any of you were down there in, at, in those days, but everybody and his brother that had anything to do with stress management, counseling, local churches, volunteer fire departments, they were all down there offering their services. And to be honest with you, it was hard to distinguish who the IAFF guys and the New York City guys were from them. And uh, we eventually had to get jackets made to distinguish them. But there, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of strange people there. <laughs> uh, they had done this a little bit, a similar organization in Worcester, Massachusetts in 1999. They had a fatal fire there, an ice house, an old abandoned ice house collapsed, and several firefighters had been killed. So on a smaller scale to what we did on 9-11, that was the first time it had done we needed a peer, and that was, once again, mostly the guys from Massachusetts initially. A member of the clergy went with them. And then when we could, we had two FDMY retirees uh, go with them. And in the beginning, we didn't know where we were going to get these FDMY re retirees. So once again, I called Frankie, and Frankie called the old firehouse, and some of the, uh, we were known as the bums on the hill, and some of the Bums on the Hill, and I'll bring it up a little bit in a minute when Jeff comes up here to talk, responded. We had a, a really good team. And, and of all the things we did, clearly the most important thing was to identify members that were in need of counseling services, and that was a tough call. You know, sometimes we couldn't tell. You know, the, the, the peer counselor was there. Was, 
And most of those referrals came from other members of the firehouse. You talk to the officer or you talk to the senior man in the firehouse, and he would say, hey, uh, Jim Smith is really having a tough time. You know, he might need some, some additional uh, help. And as soon as we got one of those, our job was strictly to give it over to the counseling unit. We were very careful that they were referred to them and, and they took over at that point. Here's the story. <laughs> Here's the story. And Jeff will, uh, Jeff will clarify their role in a little bit. My, my wife came up there, I guess about 10 days in with my son. And, uh, you know, I was, we, we were really busy. So I told her, I said, listen, we're doing this operation at the Sheridan. Uh, there's going to be firefighters all over the city. Whatever you do, you can't send anybody up to me because we, we were dealing with peers and we're dealing with retirees and counseling people. So, you know, just don't, don't do anything. So, my wife goes to, uh, what was the name of the place, Jeff? The Hard Rock Cafe that evening with a big FDMY t-shirt and sees guys with uh, fire department t-shirts on. And of course, she's a little bit outgoing and goes over and makes friends. And after talking to Jeff and the crew from Orange County, she said, uh, and Jeff explained that they didn't really have a role. They were just looking to help wherever they could help. My wife says, of course, come tomorrow morning to my husband's office. I'm sure they have a job for you. <laughs> so, so anyhow, so now it's like quarter to nine, and we're getting all the teams together. It's really busy. You're going to go to this firehouse. You're going to go here. And in walks Jeff and how many other guys? Four? Seven total, Seven total guys, and they've got the dress uniforms on, and, and, and as they come in the office, Frankie and a couple of the other retirees see them come in and started to say things like, you guys are gorgeous. What do you, what do, you do in California? Do you just, you know, do you eat salad and pump iron all day? You know? <laughs> and anyhow, uh, at that point, I really didn't have a specific assignment because, you know, our, our job was somewhat specialized. But, Jeff, can you come up just for a second and, and talk about what you did from that point? The last thing I want to do is take away from these guys and, and their effort and what they actually did. My role was so small. Uh, Brett Culp and Ryan Bishop were the first two guys through that door, obviously, for those guys to look at them and go, wow, you guys are gorgeous. All you do is eat salad and pump iron, right? So there were seven of us that really just went down to go to funerals and show some respect for the significant hit that the city and the country actually absorbed that day. Uh, normally a, a funeral for any firefighter lost in the line of duty that way is going to get 10,000 members, you know, and I think uh, the last day we were there, there was over 20 firefighter funerals in one day, you know, so you have very small um, amount of people there. So uh, really we... We came to try to meet Maureen Fanning, who was a, uh, she was the widow, ultimately a widow, uh, for Battalion Chief Jack Fanning, who was a Special Operations Command Chief, who had two autistic kids. And uh, I just wanted to reach out and tell her that we cared. And it was odd when uh, you guys put us in contact with 288 
and uh, hazmat unit, they were like, why do you want to meet her? And uh, I didn't have a good answer. I just wanted to tell her, you know, that we cared, you know. What, what can we do? We don't even know her. She doesn't know us. Uh, and some of the people that we talked to said, she's a hard woman. You, she might not want to meet you. And so it was a, it was a really difficult thing, but uh, certainly with the help of uh, Frank and Joe and the amazing work that they did, uh, they put us in contact with the right people. And thankfully, Terry uh, was uh, outgoing and able to reach out. We gave uh, Matt a, you know, our same fire stickers that we still carry. Um, and that connection uh, really ended up in a, a lifelong friendship with these guys. So that was it. All right. So, Buck, Uncle Buck, you're on. Uh, just a little background. I'm just going to step back to the beginning of this. Uh, I did 30 years on a job, a lot of it with Joe, and we've been close friends for 50 years. That day, I was golfing with two other firemen and a, a guy I didn't know. And I'm not a good golfer. So this guy was making excuses why he was bad, the, the non-fireman. So I tried to tell him, you don't have to make excuses. We stink too, you know? So now after nine, he goes and gets two beers, and he's telling us he thinks he didn't take his medication or he might have taken it twice. I said, oh, my God, this is the last thing this guy needs is two quarts of beer, right? So he comes out, he almost falls down, almost spills the beer, and the first words out of his mouth is the plane crashed into the trade center. So I said, oh, a Piper Cub must have went astray. So now we're golfing a little longer. So he says, a second plane. So as soon as I heard a second plane, I said, this isn't an accident, you know. And about half hour later, they said, get off the golf course, because the Shanksville plane hadn't, nothing, it hadn't crashed, it hadn't landed, and they thought if they could take control of it, they, a golf course would be a good place to land a plane. So real quick, I went home. My wife used to work four to midnight. She was getting ready. I, I said, I'm not going down there. You know, I'm retired. Now I'm watching the replay of the towers going down. Before she left, I was down there. Uh, I made it in 55 minutes. It's unbelievable. There was no one on the road. Zero people. They kept asking me where I'm going. I showed them my gear. I got down there. It was amazing. It was surreal. You couldn't even get close because Building 7 didn't come down yet. So they wouldn't let you anywhere near it. So I went looking for people. I have a cousin, his name is Vinny Ungaro, one of the pilot's brothers, Pete Campanelli from Squad 288. I was looking for people. You can only go so far. So long story short, I found that they were all right. Then that building came down, and you were allowed to go into Ground Zero for the first time. And now I don't know if you remember seeing the pictures. You didn't see many red rigs there because they, they were already gone. What you did see is black and yellow heavy pieces of equipment. That was the steel workers. They were the only one for about a week doing anything, anything at all. It was just too heavy. It had to be moved and cut, or else you're not going to do anything. And it was still hot spots. It was, it was surreal. And, and they really needed, I said this, I don't know if I ever told Joe, they needed an army officer there with a company of people <laughs> to take charge because there was so much, excuse me, there was so much conflict going on there. Uh, Police, fire, FBI. The reason that you couldn't get into Ground Zero was there was the, the federal buildings had gold bars in them. There were valuables all over the place. So that's why you had to have credentials to get to Ground Zero. So uh, that day went by like a blur. I got home about 11 o'clock. 
then Joe came and we met, and then his friend Tom Fitzpatrick said, could we set up a support team, which we did. We, uh, we decided that we're going to go, of course, to the firehouses that lost the most people. It made the most sense, you know? Now, you got to remember, I'm not, <laughs> I was a cook in the army, <laughs> a can man on this job. I have nothing. Joe has more training with me about uh, peer training and, and critical incident. I have none of that. You know, I'm good with logistics. He said, I need a uniform. I'll get you a uniform. I know I have 30 years on a job. You know people, so I could do that, you know? So we go into an office that was a small office, and all it had was a desk and a blackboard, and there was nothing there. And I looked at Joe, I said, what are we supposed to do here? Like, you know? So he said, all right, we're going to set up firehouse visits. You know, we're going to send a clergy, a peer, and two firemen. Like, the firemen were the key to the firehouse, because we didn't know how we were going to be accepted. People were angry. You know, your loved ones, fire, providers dead. So we, we decided to make teams, and we sent them out. And uh, we had to get an organizational chart we have uh, an organizational chart with the five boroughs, with every firehouse in it, what their street addresses were, and then we marked them with firehouses that lost the most men. And then after that, just firehouses. And we, we, we had intentions of going to all of them, but first the firehouses that lost the most men. You know, Joe, Joe did a great job, and he called up another lieutenant, Pat Reynolds, who was living in Kentucky at the time, and he came up to help in the office, too, because that's what you needed. I was making field visits to the firehouses, and in between going to Ground Zero, and, and someone had to run the office. And another great guy, Dan Tracy, a superhero, he came there to help, and, and these guys ran the office at that time. And uh, we had to get the teams, get a schedule, where they were going, when they were going, the names of people, and what firehouses to visit. And for people, like I said, to me, I was amazed that we were able to articulate this and, and then take records of it. We even talked about, you know, before we go, here's what we're going to do. And as Joe said, uh, try to see who, who needed the most help. And some were obvious. <laughs> there was a captain that when, when Giuliani went from rescue to recovery, he, he banged the kitchen desk. That's his BS. We're still going to get our guys out. All right, calm down. We hope to get everyone out, you know. But his name was referred. His name was referred to counseling. So then we set the firehouse visits up, and this this is easily what I understood. I said, "What could you do? Like, you know, what could you do? You know, you go to funerals, but you can't you can't bring these people back. So this was simple. Because do you need a cell phone? A lot was destroyed. Do you need clothing? Fire department equipment, vehicles. Do you need vehicles to go to and from the uh, hospitals if you're loved one was injured, or funerals, how you get into the funeral. 10 and 10 lost all their vehicles, because they used to park them in, uh, what the, was the hotel, Joe? In the base, well, in the basement, basement of the Trade Center. Basement of the Trade yeah. Center, so they lost them all. And Joe said the IAF got, uh, got them rentals in the uh, interim till they could get squared away, but it was. Just two things. One is that. The operation of the teams was the main objective, but there were so many of these other ancillary things that were going on at the time, uh, requests from different people. It, it was a 24-hour-a-day operation. The other thing Frankie mentioned was Pat Reynolds that came to help us. He was one of the, you know, we were in the bums on the hill. We were, you know, a real ghetto fire company, and they sent us this new lieutenant, and he was like, the straight guy, and he had everything organized, and he was forever known as Patty Perfect. Perfect. 
That was his name. So when we needed organization, we called Patty, Patty. Perfect. And, and he, he said everything. He had, uh, what was the thing before? Uh, oh, the, a handheld like a Palm Pilot. And he had everything on the Palm Pilot about what companies, what, you know, everything. whatever. And then he had to go back the following Monday when we started the visits. None of us knew how to operate the Palm Pilot. <laughs> we threw everything and just went from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Mr. Efficiency, Patty Reynolds, he was unbelievable. Great guy, though. I mean, he, he helped tremendously. So the, the objective, objectives were hands-on. Can we help you with physical stuff? Especially for me, I can't, help, I can't even help myself mentally. You know I mean? How am I going to help anyone else, you know? So uh, then, then we had uh, teams went out, and we saw. We, we, big thing was identify referrals to the CSU. Because even the peers couldn't help some of these people. They had to talk, you know? And uh, we provide an emotional support. And so we reached out, and it, one word led to another that we needed people to come out. Father Gunn took care of the clergy. Uh, a couple of fellas from uh, Boston area, uh, Spike Lawless and uh, Willie Ostergaard, took care of peers. And uh, we took care of the retirees. And, and it worked. It was by, by a, and within a week, it was so well oiled. We, the, we, the night before, we put up what teams were going out. We got up to, I believe, four or five teams a day were going out with these group of people, and they were going to hit three, four, five firehouses, depending on how it was, which, and of course, hit the ones that lost the most people first. And it was just, uh, it, it was well worthwhile, because you'd come back, and this person needs this, this person needs that. Here's the big thing. This was amazing. Whoever thought of this, and I knew it wasn't me, that we kept the data record. You know, we kept the data record of where we have been, who we saw, what we talked about, what was done, what, what needs to be changed, and, and we compiled it. I thought that was pretty amazing. And it eventually was turned over to the counseling, counseling unit service after unit. We, our operations finished. Yeah. Firehouses in Manhattan you, you became a zoo, 10 and 10, 22 and 13, 54 and 4, because they're in Manhattan. Tourists are there every day, and, and it was, let's go. They didn't mean it. You know, but they're gawking, you know. Most fires just put the picture of the people they lost. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it, it was a tough situation. It really was. And you didn't know what to say to people. A lot of times they, you went back to the same place. I remember in a seven truck and 16 engine that this one family, George Kane's girlfriend and the mother kept coming, you know, and asking, they, 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 the firemen say they were living there. They were waiting for that call from George that he's all right, you know. So, uh they, uh, they come over and they ask you, are we going to find George? Yeah. What do you tell someone? And, and one of the things with the members of the clergy, sometimes when the teams came back at the end of the day, the clergy looked like they just got beat up. I mean, they were really under a, a, an extraordinary amount of pressure to provide some of, some of the answers to why this happened. And that question, where was God, was... I mean, I don't know how you, I don't know how everybody answered that question. You don't. But it was one of those questions that was certainly out there. Uh, there was a lot of anger on some of the parts of, you know, the, the members. And some of that anger was directed at members of the clergy. And it was not personal. It was really just trying to get rid of some of that anger. Yeah. They, uh, 
The people didn't, they didn't know what to do with their anger. You lose someone and there's no answer. So I would just tell them there's always hope. I used to, and I found out later what I was telling them was so wrong. I thought there were seven stories below the Trade Center, and, and there were. A train used to run under there. And I said, you know, there's always hope. If you made it down to the basement, there's seven stories. So maybe you even found a place with food and water and all that stuff. Then I saw later, seven stories. 18 inches high. The other thing that was going on is that there was business, there was still fires to be fought, there was still normal operations that were going on. Guys were exhausted. Equipment was, everybody wanted to get back to work, but half of them, their fire trucks were gone. Uh, initially, we tried to get axes, we tried to get tools. Whatever needed to be gotten, we tried to help out with that. And the media was always there. That was the other thing. It was always looking over your shoulder. Yeah. They were there. Yeah, so that was basically what we did in those visits. Try to uh, establish who needed help and try to get physically what we could. And, and to limit, don't, Joe tells the story, two old timers went, <laughs> and they were talking about fires from the 30s. Who the hell even cared about that, you know? <laughs> you got to deal with the immediate, you know, and... Uh, I don't know. We we just uh, it, it just worked out. I don't know, probably because of Joe's expertise and Patty Reynolds, and, and it just worked out. It worked smooth, and and uh, I think that uh, we accomplished things that, that these people needed. And you know, I, I don't know what they felt about it. They're probably still dazed by it. You're still dazed. Uh, I think there's about, I think it's 1,100 families that have never even gotten any DNA, nothing, zero. And the fellow talked about Joe Holland, who we know. His son wasn't a firefighter, not that it matters. You don't have to be a firefighter. He got almost the whole body back. A lucky one. Got the whole body back to bury other people. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. What do I tell my children? <laughs> Is daddy coming back? Just, just some of the tips that the guys use. As, and, and, you know, it was a learning experience as well the things that work best, some of the steps that you should be taking. Uh, try to get people engaged in one-on-one -on -one conversations if you can do it, because a lot of people would be willing to speak to you on the side, but they're not going to get up in front of the group. Uh, I went down to Charleston, South Carolina, when uh, the, the Charleston, Charleston Nine was called, when they were killed. And... Uh, Part of the problem there was I went down with the IAFF with Pat Morrison, but they're a uh, right-to-work state, and a union had a lot of difficulties with the administration. That uh, It was more of a fraternal organization, and a lot of guys were very reluctant to say anything. They thought whatever they told us was going to be recorded and was going to be used against them. And as a result of that, the IAFF wound up not doing the peer support. They actually called in the New York City peers who were already in operation, and they come in and handle it because of that. But for us, the IAFF was wonderful. Leave it up. Yeah. That last one, uh, check up. If you, if you promise someone a cell phone or a car or whatever it is, get back to them. Because I think someone was, or maybe it was the chief. Feynman is very cynical, you know, like, if you promise them something and you don't come through with it, it's like, whoa, wildfire. They, they don't come through, they tell you they're going to get something, but that would be it. They, they tell you, but they don't come through. So get back to them. If you can't get it, 
Tell them you're having a problem, which they'll understand. But don't just tell them you're getting something and then not get back to them or check and see that they got it, what you promised. Okay, these are the lessons learned. This, especially 9-11, this incident has no end. It's ongoing. It is ongoing. It's just amazing that you see people, you know, I'm retired 18 years. I, re- I retired the year before 9-11, and I see people, and you ask them how they're doing, and they just shake their head. People who lost loved ones, their sons or daughters or whatever, you know, and, it, and I'm not just relating to the fire department because 3,000 people got killed. They all weren't firemen. They were civilians. So you see people, and it's just, this one, this one will go on. People are going to get sick. I think there's, I forget how many, a thousand people, Joe, with cancers. Yeah, yeah we'll go over it. We'll go yeah. over it. So be prepared for the unexpected. Be prepared for the unexpected because you don't know what's going to come at you. There was never, never a 9-11. So you just don't know. And it, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be back again, hopefully smaller. Hopefully not like this because. So the incident not having an ending most incidents happened, and then there is a diffusing and a debriefing and the whole procedure. But that certainly couldn't happen because it was going on for months. The search literally went on for about eight months before Giuliani ordered everybody out. Uh, and then since then, it still hasn't ended, and I'll refer to that in a yeah. second. They're still finding people, like when they, uh, some of the build surrounding buildings, they'll find little pieces of DNA. It's just unbelievable, and that'll probably go on for a while until they recover all 3,000, whatever it was. At one time, it was, it was funny. It was actually 2983, and Joe and I worked in 29, and the engine company associated with 83. But that number changes. It fluctuates. They downgrade it. They upgrade it. But it's a lot of people, a lot of lives, a lot of children, a lot of children that lost loved ones. So those are the totals. For the, for the time we were in operation, which was about six weeks, uh, 475 visits, we eventually did get to every firehouse in the city. Yeah, that was a big key, to build, build that bridge between the fire department and CSU. So everyone like, you know, I don't need help. I'm too strong, you know, weakness. You didn't want it found out that, you know, you're, you're that weak. You're human. You're human. You didn't want, you didn't want anyone to find out. And just the other thing is we knew that in six weeks we were going to be gone and the counseling unit was going to have to take over at that point. And by that point in six weeks, the counseling unit had grown exponentially. They, they had financing and, and were able to uh, walk prepared to h- handle that number. When it initially happened, uh, and I don't have the details, and if I did, I probably wouldn't share them anyhow. But the counseling unit was, their job, what, and you saw they only had six, 11 people in the entire counseling unit. They were charged with making the death notifications. And I don't know what happened, but there was some type of a major screw-up. And, I, I, you know, and you, when you look at the numbers, you can understand why there'd be some, some difficulties making those notifications. So what happened was a group of retired chiefs, well-respected chiefs, got together and formed their own group that went out and did all the death notifications. So I don't know that anybody could be prepared to make that many death notifications, but a contingency plan may be something that we should think about, that if we ever have a major disaster like this again, 
that there's other ways or other that that's something that should be addressed. Okay. Real quickly, the pipe band, the Emerald Society pipe band, you know, they only have about 80, 100 members. And as Joe said, at one point there were like 20 funerals in one day, all over, all, all over New Jersey, Long Island, upstate, downstate, city. And they just, they broke up into four groups to try to handle this, but that wasn't enough, you know. And they, they did yeoman's work. Incredible. Yeoman's work to, to show up at these to, and a mark of respect that these guys did. And uh, every, every time down at Ground Zero, if they could, if they could get a bagpiper to pipe someone out. Amazing. Uh, so these were some of the other things that we were able to help them for, with. And once again, most of this was through the IAFF. They were wonderful. Uh, Firehouse visits, office staffing, we got them additional people to work in the counseling unit. Uh, clinicians at family assistance centers, that we eventually established family counseling centers around the city and actually in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the surrounding areas of New York. Uh, grief counselors were provided. Uh, Long-term planning, uh, there was a nonprofit foundation started by the IAFF to get money to the counseling service so they could expand. Uh, it started with a seven-year business plan with a one-year budget. And I talked to Pat Morrison the other day. He said they went on funding the counseling unit financially for 10 years. So there was certainly a need. And the counseling unit is busy. They're busy with people from, from there. Uh, one of the things, I went to a... Uh, out to the fire academy, and it was a meeting of various agencies and how we're going to help, what we're going to do. This was about a, a week in, and I met with the captain in charge of the ceremonial unit. So uh, he said, and he was almost in tears telling me, he said, listen, we've got five fire department flags, and we have five, cents of, uh, five sets of bunting to drape the firehouses with. He said, where, where are we going to get all this what we need. So uh, I, I was uh, telling Kimberly before, there was a, a guy there from, it was a wildfire, wild, tell me again, Kimberly, wild? Yeah, that's who he was. And his name was Tom Turk. <laughs> Tom Turk, and he was, he had one of those Smokey the Bear, he yeah. looked like Smokey the Bear. Big he had one, man. Yeah, one of these big hats on. And the only place that makes these flags and does this bunting is in southern New Jersey, you know, uh, you know, like a day's drive from where we were. And he said, don't worry, Chief, I'm going to get down there and we'll get everything you need. And he came back. He said he was there with like 75 women who sold the flags. And he said he stayed there, they worked night and day, and they eventually got the materials that they needed and got it done. Uh, one of the things, that uh, the $10,000 delivered to each family on 929, there were a lot of uh, charities that started and people were very generous and money was coming in. But the immediate needs of people who just lost everything, you know, a lot of firefighters work second jobs, they depended upon that income. So money was coming down the pipe but nothing right away. So the IAFF decided to give $10,000 to each family. So Within two weeks, there was substantial help, at least for the, for the near, near term. And in the long term, everything was taken care of. People were extremely generous. This last issue is somewhat of the elephant in the room. 
there were gifts. People were walking into firehouses giving cash, checks, uh, food, whatever it was, but significant amounts of money. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Some, some firehouses, 22 and 13, 54 and 4, 10 and 10. The Midtown. Midtown, Manhattan. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. No exaggeration. No exaggeration at all. And ghetto firehouses like 83 and 29, we are zero. And we lost the guy, Tom. We lost the guy, Tommy Scholes. And I said to the union guy, Tom Lamacha, the tre treasurer, I said, Tommy, you got to do something with this fund. He says, we can't. We can't do it. The families won't allow it from the firehouses that are getting all the money. But it was little inequity. Maybe, maybe you can't put it all into a general fund. But one firehouse can't get 100000 and another one get zero. I know it sounds petty, but doesn't it always come down to the dollar? <laughs> Sad. So there has to be a better system. And in the future, I know I spoke to Jeff about this yesterday. And it seems like Orange County has a pretty good plan for things like that. But it was just one of those things. that was, And it wasn't talked about. You know, it just wasn't talked about. It wasn't equitable. And it wasn't discussed. Uh, that's what the counseling unit went to in, in 16 months. Obviously, the, the number of peers, the number of offices, everything uh, grew exponentially. All right, so last but not least is the uh, 182 and counting. Uh, EPA, and that was, uh, what was her name? Uh, Christy Todd Whitman. Christy Todd Whitman, head of the EPA, said, on the 14th, that the air samples are good. On the 18th, so one week after, they said the air is safe to breathe. Since that time, as it, when I put this PowerPoint together, we had lost 182 New York City firefighters who died of 9-11 related diseases, strange cancers, or cancers that uh, young people don't get, that they were coming down with. Uh, and since that time, which is only Weeks away, we lost another four people. Uh, 9,785 cancer victims related to 9-11 exposures. So it's not something that's, so what, when we said before that this is something that doesn't end, it certainly it doesn't end because of this still going on. Yeah. This is monumental to see two over 1,000-foot structures down. And, and one of the things that impressed me will be in my memory forever is walking around here and not seeing anything but dust. I'm sorry, but that's monumental. A thousand feet high, nothing but dust. That's, that's what was left after that. Thank you again. All right. Thank you, guys. We appreciate it. That's all for this episode. I encourage you to go back and listen to the other podcasts in this behavioral health series and to watch the videos. It can be helpful with the PowerPoint slides to follow along with. We hope to bring you more content like this in the future. And if you have any suggestions for future conferences, please reach out to me directly. Until then, take care of each other. We'll talk to you soon.